0: Philippians, let's read chapter 2, verse 1, down through verse 13. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, Intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who's at work in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And the sweet things that it says about our Lord. We thank you, Father, for the pictures that you show us. The, the heights and the depths. We thank you, Father, that it is from his work here as he comes and becomes flesh and humbles himself even to the point of death and death on a cross, that this becomes the, the work that wins our salvation. And this is what Paul points us to and this is what he tells us to, to therefore obey because God's at work in you. God, we look at these things and we pray that you would capture our attention and our affection and that our hearts would be stirred to love Christ and from love to desire to obey him. God, we are grateful that you are at work and that in your children you are at work for our eternal good. And surely, God, the proportions are so large that we can't really comprehend them. And the things that you say, God, we, we struggle to get our minds around. Yet, God, we're glad to know that you're not only at work for our eternal good, but that you're at work now. And you deal kindly with us now. God, we come to you tonight from a, a week of busyness and distractions. We come, Father, many with burdens. God, some who struggle with sickness, some with cancer scares, others, Father, with perhaps Issues at home with children or a spouse. God, we are such needy children. Eternally needy, yes, but God, needy now. And with all of the, the stuff that comes with living in a world like this, in a fallen world, and interacting with fallen people, and we ourselves, God, still sinful. God, we ask that you would help us to respond like Christ would have us to respond to the things that we deal with directly, but God, also to our brothers and sisters around us who are hurting. Lord, help us to know what to say, what not to say, when to speak and when to be quiet, how to encourage without giving weakening words, God, help us to point people to the only real and enduring hope and comfort that there is, the comfort that you give. God, we're grateful that you have an abundant supply that you willingly give. God, we feel that these things are beyond ourselves, but they're not beyond you. We ask for your help, God, with those things, but also, God, as we look at this passage, God, help us to think rightly about the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. Have you ever caught yourself looking at a really spectacular sunrise or sunset and just kind of stand in awe of it for a moment and then maybe realize that You've seen a bunch of other sunsets and sunrises that were probably no less spectacular, and you were oblivious to them. Um, you know, sometimes we we become oblivious to things that we are familiar with. I sometimes see touristy kind of magazines or write-ups or hear people talking about New Albany as a destination for tourism or vacation, and I always think, why? I like New Albany, but I can't imagine going to New Albany for vacation. You know, it's like Tanglefoot Trail. And I think, you know, great, go walk down this piece of asphalt and this is vacation. Um, but maybe people who live at the beach or at the mountains think the same thing. You know, I wonder if people, you know, living at the mountains think, yeah, that hill behind my house, you know, you think, wow, look at that mountain, you going my backyard. And it's just, it's there. They, they become, you know, just oblivious to it because it's the scenery they live with all the time. Exposure to people or things that once inspired a sense of wonder often cease to produce that same sense of wonder as we just get familiar with it. Um, I was thinking about taking you know, kids to the zoo for the first time and they look at all the animals and it's like, you know, wow. And most of the adults are just thinking, it's so hot. And you know, let's hurry up and see the chimpanzees so we can leave or something like that. Or, or when you first learn to drive, you know, it's it's like this great thing that you get to do. And it's freedom or whatever else. And, you know, after a while, it's just, just, you don't even think about it. Sometimes you end up at the place you're going and you stop and think, how did I get here? I don't even remember the drive. It's just, you know, part of life. I'm not anti-Christmas at all. But surely we have to beware lest looking at some reproduction of the babe in the manger, the nativity scene, we lose our sense of wonder at the incarnation and not let it become a caricature. It is this shocking reality of the incarnation that Paul points us to in Philippians 2. The reality that the second person of the triune Godhead humbled himself, becoming flesh, Last time we were in Philippians 2, we looked at verse 6, where Paul points to the reality of what Christ, the position that Christ um, held before his incarnation. And then in verses 7 and 8, he points to the incarnation itself. He shows us something of where he starts before he shows us how far he stoops. I'd like to give a very quick review of verse 6. Very quick. Uh, we can't just spend the entire time on verse 6 like we did last time, but I do want to remind you that Paul points to two realities. He says that Christ existed in the form of God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that first reality, he points to the fact not just that the Son of God existed before the incarnation, which he did, but he tells us that he existed in the form or the appearance or the shape of God. While there are other passages that emphasize that, that Christ has the same essence or nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's not what he emphasizes in this passage. And one of the reasons that he emphasizes what Christ looked like is because of what he's going to look like in the Incarnation. He moves from the form of God to the form of a bond slave. And so he's making that comparison. But here, he exists in the form of God. Yet, God doesn't have a body like men, we, we said. And he doesn't have a material shape. He is a spirit. So what does God look like? And in the Old Testament, we tried to see that that seems to be a... a um, He's pointing us to the glory of God, the appearance of the God's majesty manifesting itself in glory. And so I think that the form that Paul speaks of, the form that Christ existed in, the form of God is a reference to His glory. In John 17, as Jesus prays His high priestly prayer, preparing for the cross, He prays and says, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, With the glory which I had with you before the world was. I had that with you before the world was. Glorify me again with it. I'm completing the work. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the writer of Hebrews speaking of Christ after his resurrection, after his ascension, points to the Lord Jesus and says he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So before he took the form of a bondservant, he existed in the form of God. Before he took the appearance of a lowly man and the the, the function of a slave, before that he existed in the appearance of the all-glorious God. But the second reality that Paul mentions in verse 6 is that he did not consider that something to grasp. We talked about how that word is a rare expression in the New Testament. It's the only place it occurs in the Bible. And it's rare outside of New Testament literature. Um, But research into the phrase, the idiom, seems to tell us that the word conveys something that is already possessed. And it speaks to how you use this thing that you already have. So Paul is not saying that Jesus wanted to have equality with God and didn't have it and was reaching for it, grabbing at it, which is something the King James almost hints at or some people could take from the translation of the King James where it says he didn't consider equality with God. He didn't consider it robbery to to be equal. He didn't regard equality with God. as Where did it go? I've got it written down somewhere. I don't know where I wrote it. I put it somewhere. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't think that was something that was robbery to be equal. So you could read it that way. I don't think that's what the translators meant, but you could read it that way. Others say that Jesus has this equality and he grabs at it like not wanting to lose it or to keep someone else from taking it, that kind of idea. But I don't believe those are the things that Paul's expressing at all. Rather, Christ, who possesses all the glory and majesty of an infinite almighty God, does not use that as an excuse to keep him from coming to rescue us. He's not so preoccupied with himself in the highest position, with all the glory that's his and all the attention of angels. That doesn't so preoccupy him that he's oblivious to you. And unwilling to stoop to come and rescue you. Although he occupies the highest place and possesses the highest dignity, he is willing to humble himself. So tonight we look at verses 7 and 8. He doesn't exploit his honor, his position, his glory, he humbles himself. And verse 7 tells us, he introduces this thought by saying he emptied himself both the new american standard translation and the english standard version translated that way he emptied himself and it's a very literal translation however a number of errors have arisen around those words there are people who have come to understand christ emptying himself as meaning he emptied himself of deity somehow By becoming man, he stops being God. But that doesn't really fit with the testimony of Scripture at all. So whatever it means, it does not mean that. He doesn't stop being God. He continues to be God. Others have kind of a modified view of that, and they think that what he empties himself of is his attributes, or certain attributes. And you can see kind of how they might think this, how does... How does the man Christ Jesus have omniscience or omnipresence? And yet, Jesus, the God-man, has two natures. And he doesn't give up any of his attributes as God. Those are the things that you could almost say define him as God. or, Or they belong to him as God. They're part of what it means for him to be God. And for him to give up any of those things is to, in fact, give up deity. And so he doesn't stop being omniscient even though we see him in his humanity sometimes limited in what he knows. He doesn't stop being omnipresent as God even though as a man he walks and occupies one place. I told you last time there's a lot of mystery here. The things that we won't fully understand. But he does not empty himself of his attributes. I have a footnote in New American Standard that says he laid aside his privileges. And one New King James I looked at has a similar footnote. He emptied himself of his privileges. Not only does that view, either of those views, have theological problems, but they also have linguistic problems. The verb here, Emptied is related to an adjective that means to empty or to devoid something of its contents. So for instance, in Luke chapter 1, in verse 53, in the Magnificat, Mary says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. They're empty. They don't have what the hungry have. They're filled, but the rich are sent away empty. Or in Luke chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Well, in those uses, part of speech is an adjective and it means... What it sounds like. They're empty. They don't have it. But Paul uses a verb, and he's the only New Testament writer to use the verb. He uses it five times, and he never uses it in a literal sense. I think the other four uses or occasions perhaps are a little more clear, more obvious, but he uses it metaphorically. And he uses it to convey the idea of Making something ineffective to render it void. Not empty, but void. Powerless. But never to speak of taking a container and pouring the contents out. So, whatever Jesus is doing here and emptying himself, he's not getting rid of what he has. In fact, if you keep looking at the verse, the verse seems to emphasize the idea that he empties himself by taking, not by subtracting, but by adding. Verse seven, he emptied himself. There's the verb and the rest of the the verse modifies that. Here's how he empties himself. He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He empties Himself by taking something to Himself. The form of a bondservant, the likeness of men. Jesus humbled Himself not by abandoning His divine right and knowledge, but by adding to His divine nature a complete human nature, a nature that's limited like ours, yet without sin. So this isn't a depletion so much as it is an addition he veils his glory, the form of God, by taking the form of a bondservant. The thought is closer to how the King James, the New King James translates this. He made himself of no reputation. He does not give up any part of his being God or anything that's necessary to his being God. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul emphasizes his form and not his essence. He appeared, he existed in the appearance of God, the form of God. He took the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself of his appearance, not his essence. It's his glory, his majesty, the appearance of it. He was always due all the glory that God is due, all the time. But he empties himself, or he makes himself of no reputation. How? By getting, not not by getting rid of his glory as if he could, but by veiling it, by covering it. He cloaks it. He takes the form of a bondservant. Augustine wrote, He emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. Or J.I. Packer, He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. One more, Peter Lewis Though he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. He doesn't stop being God in any fashion. But he does become man. The flesh of humanity was like a veil that covered the glory of God, much like the veil inside the tabernacle covered the glory of God that existed in the Holy of Holies. When verse 8 says that he was found in appearance as a man, verse 7, similarly, he was in the likeness of men. It doesn't mean that he just looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. He really was a man. In fact, the Apostle John made sure that we understood that. In, In 2 John 7, he said, For many deceivers have gone Out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Christ came in the flesh. In his first epistle, he began by saying what we have seen and our ears have heard and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We've touched him. We know he was real. He didn't just look like a man and sound like a man. We, We felt him. He was flesh. But Paul, again, is not emphasizing here his nature, his appearance. He looked like a man because he was a man. And that's what people saw. There were the people like Simeon and Anna whom the Lord opened their eyes to see there was something more going on here than than just a baby as he appears at the temple. But most people would see a baby. And we sometimes... See pictures of of Jesus, artist renditions, you know, with kind of a halo over his head. You know, that, that didn't exist. He looked like a man. People saw a man. Most people saw the son of the carpenter if they thought of him in any fashion at all other than some guy walking down the road. He was so thoroughly a man that during his ministry, Jesus was repeatedly accused by those around him of blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. In Matthew 26, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. There are many instances of this. Let me give you one more from John 5. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The people who saw him, most of the people did not recognize him as God. They saw a man. And not just a man. Again, he he looked like an average man, an average guy. Maybe a little bit below average in appearance. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. When you saw the man Christ Jesus, you didn't look at Him and think, What a good looking guy. He wasn't like Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. There was nothing about his appearance in and of itself that was striking that made you think, I just want to hang out with this guy. He's such a good-looking guy. He comes in humility. He could put on whatever he wanted to. But he doesn't come in a striking fashion. In appearance-wise we don't get to choose our features. Uh, you know, if we could dial in our height and our eye color and all those sorts of things, I wonder how many people would adjust those things or who would be happy with exactly how you are? You know, we look in the mirror and new wrinkles and less hair and all those kinds of things. Do so you think, you know if I could change this or that, but you can't change any of that. You don't determine any of that. You know, even your stylist doesn't really determine any of that, right? But Jesus could have chosen whatever. I mean, he chooses what's fitting, but he has, he has, you know, determination that you and I don't have. And he chooses to come in a way that men don't look at him and think, here's a attractive guy. And he's content with that. He covered his glory with human flesh. He took all the reputation that was his by right and he hid it. Becoming of no reputation. Notice also that He emptied Himself. Sometimes you and I are humbled. Or maybe the better word is sometimes you and I are humiliated. Maybe someone puts you in your place in an embarrassing fashion. Or maybe life circumstances just beat on you. And, you know, what may have been a source of pride, you're not proud about anymore. You're humbled. Jesus Christ is not put in His place by anyone. He's not beaten down by the circumstances of life, even though He does bear trials and temptations. But He humbles Himself. Himself. He chooses this. He lives the life that he lives as a man of his own accord. It's the path he wants because it's the path that's necessary. He could have changed any of it. He doesn't because this is the path of obedience. He does not choose this activity of serving to look good as if people will think better of him if he serves instead of comes to be served. And he doesn't choose the activity of service because he's under some obligation to you and to me. He always meets his obligations. Rather, It is his nature. It flows from the disposition of Jesus Christ to serve. How unlike us he is. He's God. Verse 7 says that when he empties himself, he comes not only in the likeness of men, but he, he comes and takes the form of a servant. Christ not only looked like a man, but in his humanity, he took the form or the appearance of a servant. Form, again, the same word that we saw in verse 6. He existed in the form of God. He emptied himself or cloaked himself by taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. This is not an exchange of one form for another, like taking off one suit of clothes and putting on a different suit of clothes. You work clothes and you come home and you put on a different set of clothes and kind of clothes around the house. It's not that. So it's not an exchange. But rather, he manifested the form of God in the form of a servant, a slave. And he empties himself. The eternal God in the person of the Son, uncreated and infinite, stooped, To take to himself created finite flesh. And then when he does that, he who from eternity past existed in the form of God takes the form of a slave, a bondservant. I've said it a few times now, but I think it bears repeating. We've read the passage so many times. It doesn't really shock us, but it should shock us. It is scandalous. God became man. He who existed in the form of God took the form of a slave. The Philippians lived in a status conscious society. I read that there were people in Philippians talking about social climbing. As they climbed the social ladder, they would chisel their accomplishments in stone around the city. So there would be places where you know, like here's my accomplishment. And as you rose in status, you know, your your pedigree or your your accomplishments rose. And so, you know, you, you want to put them in the right order, right? You don't put the, the worst thing as the last thing. You 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 get better and um, you say the best for last. And so they kind of build until you get to whatever the best thing would be. But here's Christ in this status conscious. Society is Paul points him to Christ. He points him to Christ not moving up in status as far as the world would consider it, but moving down. He exists in the form of God. He comes, he's a man. He's not just a man, he's a slave. He dies. And not just a death, the death on the cross. And, you know, it just keeps going further and further down. But in this kind of society where status matters, and I'm not sure what society that you know, doesn't exist in. But in that kind of society, if you're trying to convince yourself and the people around you how important you are, how significant you are, then you can't really afford to put yourself in a position where you appear weak. Where others can look at you and think, oh yeah, you know, they're not nearly as significant or you don't want people to think of you as insignificant. But Christ Jesus who is the only one who really is significant, whose status is real and in a category all by itself, stoops to not only come and live among us, but to take the place of a slave, a person without rights, a person who exists to do the will of someone else. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve others. We see it at In John 13, as Jesus and the disciples enter into the upper room, and here are the disciples, conscious of status, concerned about who's going to sit where, who'll be great in the kingdom, and I'm not washing anybody's feet. And Jesus, the Lord of glory, takes the towel and washes their feet. And it is shocking. And that's why Peter says, not mine. Why does he do it? Does he do it because no one else will? Does he do it because, you know, if you want a job done right, you do it yourself? No, he does it because that's what's in the heart of Christ. He does it because that's his mindset. It's his attitude. It's the very attitude that Paul is describing here as he moves from the form of God to the form of a bond slave. And he points us to him and says, you have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well he keeps moving forward in verse eight, he tells us he's not only found an appearance as a man but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death the condescension continues unless Jesus comes back all of us will die and there's nothing we can do about it we all have an appointment with death but here's the thing All of us deserve to die. But even as a servant, even as a man, Jesus did not deserve to die. Death is the result of the fall. And while Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was not sinful. He had no sin in him. So how can the Lord of life die? When we look at humanity, there's not a lot to boast about. There's a few things, I guess, that we can kind of boast about. But not a lot to boast about, a lot to cringe about. But what dignity we might have, whatever degree of whatever to boast about, whatever You know, we're created with a likeness in the image of God that has been marred somewhat by the fall. But to whatever degree we have a dignity, Christ has that unmarred. Even in his flesh, he has that. Jesus is perfect and pure and undefiled. He's honorable. He's praiseworthy in every way what you see in public, what He is in private, what it comes out of His mouth, but also what never comes out of His mouth, but He thinks about. All of it's praiseworthy. None of it is shameful or embarrassing. So as a man, He's sinless. Christ had the right to live forever as a sinless man. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Why does the Lord of glory die? He humbled himself, even to the point of death. Do you remember when Judas led the crowd to Jesus to arrest him? Judas betrays him. The crowds come and they're going to grab him. And Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus rebukes Peter, picks up the ear, heals Malchus, and he said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, if I wanted to get out of this, I'd be gone. If I didn't want to be arrested, they wouldn't arrest me. If I didn't want to go to the cross, I wouldn't go to the cross. They couldn't make me go to the cross. Why does he die? He humbles himself. Death had no claim on him. He humbled himself becoming a man. He humbled himself taking the form of a bondservant, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Verse 8 takes it to another level, telling us even the death on a cross. Choosing to die, what kind of death does Christ choose? Does he choose to go to sleep one night and just not wake up? Or does he die in glorious battle on a battlefield? Well, not so you'd notice. Again, we've read it so many times. Not shocking. We see the cross as jewelry and as decoration. The Romans did not use the word cross in polite company, it was an obscenity. It was an awful way to die. Roman citizens could not be executed on a cross except for crimes such as treason. Jewish law also saw the cross as heinous. God said that people who hang on trees are cursed. And that's the death that Jesus chose. Capital punishment. With all the shame that would accomplish accompany capital punishment. Today society is concerned that capital punishment provides a humane death. The spectacle of it is removed from the public. We don't have public hangings anymore, or you know whatever other form that might be public, like you know Nero and some of the spectacles that he put on. We don't do that. But Jesus doesn't choose for himself a humane death, or even what would appear to the world as a noble death. Crucifixion was neither humane nor noble. It was a painful death. John Stott writes, Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. There was not only the hanging on the tree, there was the beatings that preceded it and the plucking out of his beard. Christ was so physically abused that Isaiah prophesied afterwards that he prophesied before, but he prophesied that after the cross, his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Christ was unrecognizable. But it was not only painful, it was humiliating. Again, we see artist depictions and there's always a loincloth. But you understand, there was no loincloth. Christ was not spared that bit of humiliation. He's stripped naked and He hangs before the world to see. We also sometimes see depictions of the cross where the cross is kind of lifted up above the crowd some people argue that they would have been closer to eye level so that the taunters who came by you know they're not so they're not removed from you because of the height they can get much closer in your face and mock you and taunt you up close He's deserted by the men who have been His constant companions for the past three and a half years. As well as the mocking and scorning of the crowd. Psalm 22.6 says of the Messiah, I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Hebrews 12.2 tells us He endured the cross. He endured it. And he endures it in humility. The criminals beside him join in the mockery, at least at first. Can't you imagine them and others who suffer crucifixion throughout the ages screaming back at the crowds, not only at taunting Christ, but the crowds who taunt them, the, the Romans who torture them. Now, what would they do if they could get off of that cross? What would you do? But here's Christ who could come off of the cross. And he doesn't. He bears it, he endures it in humility. And he doesn't return reviling with reviling, he doesn't scorn the people that scorn him. He endures it. And then the sky darkens. And He looks to the Father and He says, Why have you forsaken Me? And He endures that. All of this is part of His crucifixion. And it's us who deserve the crucifixion, not Him. He's sinless. He bears that in humility, though He doesn't deserve that. And He comes for this point. He who existed in the form of God took The form of a bond slave and was found in appearance as a man. And he is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He endures the embarrassment of the cross. He endures the humiliation of the cross. And in his humiliation, pardon me, in his humility, he, he takes my humiliation. In his humility, he takes my shame. The shame that he endures at the reproach of of sinners is the shame that I should endure. He takes my embarrassment. He carries my sin and becomes a curse for me, for my wicked deeds, for my vile thoughts, for my arrogant, proud self. And we look at Him and what do we see? Not a a proud, arrogant Savior, but we see a humble Savior. And when Paul tells us to be humble, he points to Jesus and says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not... Merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, we confess again, this is not natural to us. And God, if it would be a reality in us, it must be the work that You do. Yet, God, we don't want to say that passively as though we have no part in it. God, give us grace to get up and follow the steps of our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name.